0: Statements of fact are different from statements of exhortation or commands. And if you hope to live well as a Christian, then you must be careful to distinguish between the two. Because the Bible uses both statements of fact and statements of exhortation when talking about the Christian life. Christ- the Bible contains for Christians indicative statements as well as imperative statements. Indicatives are statements that tell us what is. They tell us facts. They give to us what is real. They state reality. Imperative statements are telling us our obligation, telling us our duty, telling us what ought to be done or what must be done. And scripture contains both. If you get these two mixed up when you read the Bible, then you're going to wind up at best doctrinally and spiritually confused. And if you try to live a faithful Christian life without distinguishing between imperatives, commands, and indicatives, fact, then you will be hopelessly frustrated. In the Christian life, obligations and duties are always based on facts and realities. Imperatives are always grounded in indicatives. What is always precedes what ought to be or what ought to be done. This is what keeps Christian sanctification, that is the call to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, it keeps it from mere moralism. Because if you read the Bible, you know the Bible has a lot of things in it that says, do this, don't do that. But the Bible is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just get better and be better. Rather, the obligations that are laid upon Christians are based upon realities. They're based on facts. What we are to do is based on what God has done. We see this everywhere in scripture. This relationship between the indicative and the imperative, what is factual and what ought to be. We see it even in the ten, given in the 10 commandments. The 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which I hope you know and I hope you appreciate those commandments and own those commandments as your duty as a creature made in God's image. And in Exodus chapter 3 or chapter 20 beginning in verse 3, we have the Precise words of God commanding us what we are to do, how we are to live. But even before the first commandment is given, we hear an indicative declaration in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. This is the preface to the words of the commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am this. I did this. Those are facts. It's not in dispute. It's not something you try to do. You can believe it or not, but... It's the truth, and it's only when the facts are stated about who God is and what God has done to redeem His people that the commandments are given. Now you do these things. This is the foundation of all biblical ethics. We act because God has acted. Our obedience is based on His provision. This is why so often when you read in the New Testament, about the responsibilities that we have as people of God, you see that little word, therefore, preceding commands and exhortations. Paul organizes a lot of his writings this way. You can see it in his various letters. For example, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian letter. We have three chapters of Paul. Explaining the nature and the goodness of God and our salvation. We read part of it this morning from the first chapter where we see Paul extolling, stating a fact that God has chosen us in Christ. He predestined us to adoption in Christ. And you read on in the second chapter, he talks about the atonement of Christ and how that what Christ did on the cross has united us to God and to one another. We read in those first three chapters about the regenerating work of the Spirit, about reconciliation. All of those are facts. They're spiritual realities, they're gospel truths. And it's not until the fourth chapter, verse one, that we read this I therefore, on the basis of these facts, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The Christian life is not a call to do this, don't do that. The Christian life is a call to live up to what God has done for you. To live out of the provision that He has made for you in Jesus Christ. As we continue our study in the book of Romans this morning, we're going to see Paul make this very point in chapter 6. The chapter contains our text and so I encourage you to get it in front of your eyes and just follow along because I want to read it and I want to point out certain phrases the way Paul actually makes the case that he's building in this chapter and it'll be helpful for you to actually read it for yourself. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this beginning on page 942. In chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans Paul has been expounding this amazing doctrine of justification by God's grace through faith. He says God justifies the ungodly. It's incredible. He says there's nothing that you have to do that anybody can do to get God to justify them. God justifies and He does it solely by grace. He does it as that grace works through faith and so the call for those who are not in Christ is not hey do this it's believe god it's trust jesus take god at his word and receive jesus christ in all of his provision of grace and salvation by his life and death and resurrection and as you turn from your sin and trust the lord jesus christ god justifies the ungodly. That's great news. I mean, that's really good news because what it means is that there's nobody that you know that you can say is too bad for God. There's nobody that because of wickedness, because of sin, because of anything in their background is somehow uneligible for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, this truth This reality that God saves sinners solely on the basis of His grace is so radical that it is unlike anything else that is taught anywhere in any religion. In fact, it's scandalous. People often respond like this. You mean to tell me that a guy could be a murderer? He could be a thief? And then as he's drawing his dying breaths, God could save him? And the answer is yes. It's exactly what happened to that man on the cross next to Jesus. You mean a man could could actually put Christians to death? And rejoice in it? Even claim that he's serving God while doing it? And God could save him without him having to make amends? The answer is yes. That's exactly what he did the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul wasn't writing theoretically when he said God justifies the ungodly. He was speaking theological truth from autobiographical experience. So he knows the concern, the objection to justification by grace alone through faith alone. And he addresses the concern at the outset of Romans 6 and throughout the first 14 verses. In verse 1, he states the concern in stark terms. And then in verse 2, he gives a very stark answer and then summarizes what he's going to write next with another rhetorical question. Paul elaborates the reason that God's way of saving sinners by grace does not, indeed, cannot lead to a life of sin and disobedience. And it's because of the spiritual reality, the fact, The indicative truth that when God saves someone, he unites that person to Jesus Christ. So today we want to read Romans 6 verses 3 through 10 and begin to look at this text. Specifically today, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. God willing, next week we will come back and look at the remainder of this section, verses 5 through 10, as we see some of the most glorious teaching in all the Bible regarding the Christian's union with Christ. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll read all the way down through verse 10. This is the Word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christians have been united to Jesus Christ. That's a fact. That is a reality. In these verses, the Apostle Paul doesn't state this as a goal. He doesn't state it as a duty that we are to strive for to somehow become in union with Christ. Rather, He states it as an undeniable reality and explains it. And brothers and sisters, this is the most significant reality in your life. The fact that you are in Christ is the most important thing about you. This is the most important thing about your identity. This is who you really are. And what we must learn to do is to begin to think of ourselves in this way so that when we describe ourselves, when we consider ourselves, when we talk about our identity and who we really are, that nothing else comes close to the reality that we're people in Christ. We know God through him. Paul spends verses 3 through 10 explaining the indicative, the reality of our Christian life before he begins to exhort us what to do about it in verse 11. So let's look at the structure of the argument that Paul makes in these verses. And then we're going to consider what he actually says is true of Christians because of our union with Christ. Again, we'll focus on verses 3 and 4 and Lord willing, complete that consideration of this passage next week. You look at verses 3 and 4 and what do we find there? It's a summary of his main points. Because we are in Christ, because we're in Christ, we died with him and we've been raised with him. That's it. Union with Christ, we've died with him, we've been raised with him. Look at those verses again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the main structure of these verses. Verse 5 just restates it in a more succinct and somewhat theological way. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, union with Christ in his death, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, union with Christ in new life, life of resurrection. Two parts to this summary. Christians united with Christ in death. Christians united with Christ in resurrection life. Verses 6 and 7 are an exposition of the first part of verse 5. And verses 8, 9, and 10 are an exposition of the second part. Of verse 5. In verse 6 and 7, the emphasis is we're united with Christ in death. You can look at those verses and see that language. Verses 8, 9, and 10 is an exposition of we are united with Christ in resurrection life. That's the summary. That's the argument. This morning, what I want to do is to see how Paul prefaces it in verses 3 and 4. We see language that is used in verse 3 that sets the tone for his argument throughout the remainder of this passage. He says, We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by that? Well, baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. A Christian is somebody who has been united to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means in verse 3 by this phrase. When he mentions baptism, he's not launching into a theology of baptism, and those that have tried to use this passage to teach a theology of baptism, as if it is the sum and substance of what the New Testament has to say, will inevitably go awry. In fact, this is the only place that Paul mentions baptism in the whole book of Romans. He says, all of us who have been baptized, who's he talking about? He's talking about Christians. Christians, the only people who would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who would be baptized into Jesus Christ, were those who had been born of God's Spirit and come to confess Christ as Lord. An unbaptized Christian in the first century was virtually unknown in the church. If you were a Christian, you were baptized. And nobody was baptized except those who were Christians. Baptism is a sign of being a disciple of Christ. And so when Paul says, all of us who are baptized, he's just talking about all Christians who demonstrate their faith in Christ by the outward sign of baptism. He's referring to baptism as a sign for everything God does when he saves a person. And he's reminding these Christians of the reality of their salvation. Brothers and sisters, when you Became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were united to Him, and your water baptism, it testifies to that. There's nothing magical or saving in that ordinance of water baptism, but it is significant because it is a public declaration of what is an inward truth and reality. It's right and healthy for us regularly to stop and consider exactly what we professed when we were baptized. We profess that we are now in Christ. We profess that we have been united to him, that he is our Lord. It's what Paul means by saying you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Through faith, you are now in him. Now, if you are here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, but you've never been baptized, I hope that you will feel some conviction based upon the language of the Apostle Paul here and see how unbiblical your thinking is to think that you can live as a Christian without testifying to your Christianity by being baptized. That was unheard of in the first century. It should be unheard of in every century. So if you are a Christian and you've not been baptized, then the question is, why do you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which he says? And I would plead with you to submit to Christ as Lord in baptism. And you talk to one of the church members, one of the elders, we'll be happy to have a conversation with you about what all that entails. Paul couldn't conceive of an unbaptized Christian. That's why he uses the language of baptism to make his point in verses 3 and 4. He refers to believers. True followers of Christ must identify with Christ by professing their faith in the way the Bible says, which is through water baptism. This fact, this reality that a Christian is someone who is in union with Christ is arguably the center of Paul's understanding of the whole Christian life. He uses the designation in Christ 164 times in his letters. And you never find it once in any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. James Stewart, in his classic book on Paul, which is entitled A Man in Christ, says this. The heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ. This is the key which unlocks the secrets of his soul. The great, late Westminster theologian John Murray goes even further than that. In his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he writes, Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. If this is true, then we need to to perk up and pay careful attention to what Paul writes in this text. We need to ask the Lord to help us to grow in our own awareness of, appreciation of, what it means to be in Christ. Well, in this passage, Paul makes three statements that highlight the significance of what it means to be in union with Christ. We see first, we have been united to Christ in death. You see that in verse 3. Don't you know, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Now the first thing I want to say about this is that it is an indicative statement. It's not something that we're called upon to do. It is something that is stated as fact. It is reality. It happened at a specific time. You were baptized into Christ, and it's true not just of some Christians. It's true of every Christian. If it's not true of a person, then that person is not a Christian. It's true because believers are in Christ. Now, Paul spent a long time in Romans 5, 12-19, explaining how by nature we are in Adam. You're born into this world and you're in Adam, the first man. So that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Why? Because we were in union with Adam. His sin became our sin and we were constituted, verse 19 says, as sinners by virtue of that first sin. And he also makes the case that we, being in Christ, are constituted righteous because of Christ's righteous life, death, and resurrection. Here he's bringing that home again to make us think about what it means to be united to Christ by faith. By saving grace, we're in Christ. And Paul says, Yes. And what that means is that his death is your death. In Christ, what he experienced when he went to the cross. Belongs to you. You're united to him in that way. So the death of Jesus has great significance for his followers. What objectively happened to him has significance for us directly as Christians. His death identifies us. And we identify with it. Paul states it more explicitly in verse 10 of this passage, this chapter. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is because we're in Christ, what happened to him happened to us. When we trust the Lord Jesus, everything he did, everything he accomplished, it becomes ours. Not literally. Not physically. We we weren't there 2,000 years ago physically, but genuinely, authentically, spiritually. And we've got to learn to think the way the Bible describes those realities. The text does not say, because we're in Christ, we must die to sin. It does not say that we should die to sin. It does not say that one day we will die to sin. It says we were baptized into his death. It happened. It's a fact. Christ died to sin when he died. And in him, we died to sin. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20. When he applies all this to himself, and he he just lets it out for the Galatians. It's a well-known verse. But it's a verse that is full of important doctrinal consideration for us to think about what it means to be in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is not something that Paul did to himself. Paul's not talking about something that he strives to accomplish. He's talking about something that happened to him when he became a Christian. I've been crucified with Christ. My life is hidden now with God in Christ. And so because of the union I have with Christ, His death is my death. He was baptized into the death of Christ Jesus. What it means is that just as Jesus died to the rule and the reign of sin once and forever, so too have all Christians died to the rule and reign of sin forever. That is a fact. It is a reality. You will either believe it or you won't believe it. But the truth of this fact is not dependent on your belief. But if you're going to live well as a Christian, then you must believe this truth. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not teaching, nor does the rest of the Scripture teach, that a Christian will therefore no longer sin. He's not teaching sinless perfection. Some have perverted this into trying to make it say that, but it doesn't say that. Just read the 7th chapter of Romans and you'll see clearly Paul doesn't mean that. It means that sin no longer has dominion over you because you're in Christ. Because you're in Him, you have died to sin. A Christian is no longer a slave to sin. We were born into slavery of sin, but when Christ came to us. He set us free and sin no longer has dominion over us. Yes, it remains in us. Yes, we will continue to be tempted and yes, we will continue to sin. But what it means is that a Christian will never sin successfully. By that, I mean he'll never be satisfied just to go on and sin. He'll never be content to live in sin. And if you find yourself or see someone professing Christ saying, yeah, you know what, man, I know I'm a Christian, but you know what? This is just who I am. This is my lifestyle. And I'm going to live this way contrary to what God says. That person is incompatible with what Paul is teaching a Christian is in Romans 6. When Christians sin, we sin against the reality of what we are in Christ Brothers and sisters, seeing this will help us. It will strengthen us in our fight to put the sin that remains in us to death. It will help us in our fight to live by faith. How? Because when you're tempted to sin, you can speak to yourself. And you can say, I don't have to yield to this temptation. I'm united to Christ. I died with Christ. I died to sin. And I know that with this temptation, God is not going to let me be tempted beyond what I'm able to bear. But with it, He's going to provide a way of escape. Where's the escape route? God, help me. I don't want to go that way. I feel myself compelled. Help me. Help me. I'm in Christ. Strengthen me. To be united to Christ means that you have been united to Him In his death, it means, brothers and sisters, you have objectively, in Christ, died to sin. But it also means that we have been united to Christ in burial, in his burial. Do you see this in verse 4? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, this is interesting language. Why would Paul talk about us being buried with Christ? Well, burial is the final certification of death. It represents the certainty of death. That's why our Apostles' Creed says that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. No mistake that he really died. There was a tomb that he inhabited for a couple of days. To identify with Christ's burial is to underscore our death to sin just as certainly as he died to sin. Christ, when He, as the eternal Son of God, God, took on flesh, voluntarily entered into the realm of sin by becoming a man. And in that realm, He fulfilled all the requirements of God's law. Then He voluntarily laid down His life on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for His people. And the burial of His body marked the end of living in the realm and under the reign of sin. What Paul says here about we have been buried with him is like an exclamation point to his previous assertion that Christians are united with Christ in his death. The finality of burial underscores the finality and the reality of being translated out of the realm of sin and grace and being placed under the reign of grace. It's exactly like he says in Colossians 1 that we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Baptism symbolizes this. When a Christian goes under the water, it's a picture of being dead and buried. It's a testimony of his old man, his old life. The unbelieving person has died. and The person who was dominated by sin and a slave to sin has been crucified. Buried with Christ. Again, do you see that once more, the Apostle Paul is just making a statement of fact? You see, he's not telling you to do anything. He's just saying, This is the way it is. All who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been buried with him because we are in union with him. It's not something that you're supposed to do. Christian, it's not something you strive for. It's not even something that's going to happen to you in the future. He's saying this is what it means to be in union with Christ. How did this happen? It happened when you placed your faith in Christ. It happened when the Spirit of God opened your eyes to see the beauty that is in Christ. You were spiritually joined to Him. You became identified with Him. When you came to Christ, you became part of His body. He is now your head. What happened to him happened to you. Your old life died. It was buried with him. So Christians are united to Christ in his death. We're united to him in his burial. But Paul goes on to announce a positive side to this union, and he'll elaborate this elsewhere in this chapter, which is our union with Christ makes us united to him in resurrection life. It's the last part of verse 4 in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By God's power. By a demonstration of God's power that makes it unmistakable that He is full of glory and worthy of worship. He did it in a way that shows that He now and forever has a new and glorified life as the God-man. When Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2, he made an interesting statement as he indicts the Jews that heard him there in Jerusalem. He said that you have put this man, Jesus Christ, to death. But then he said in verse 24 of Acts 2, God raised him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He defeated death. He conquered death. When He came back from the grave, He demonstrated once and for all time that He is Lord over all. On the occasion of His resurrection from the dead, the power and glory of God was put on full display. The tomb was empty. Skeptics saw Him walking, saw Him talking, saw His disciples handling Him, saw Him eating food with them, all Himself encountered this risen Christ on the road to Damascus when he was intent on arresting and persecuting more Christians. And when he saw the crucified risen Christ, it changed his life forever. The glory of God was manifested to him. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he's conquered sin, death, and hell itself. And he now lives in victory over all of his enemies. And Paul says, just as. Just as Christ was raised, so we too might walk in newness of life. God did it, raising Jesus from the dead. The implication of that for us is the ability to walk in newness of life. God raised Jesus, so he raised us in him. Just as Jesus has a new life, glorified life, so too in him Christians have been given new life. After his resurrection, Jesus started living in a new realm. He died to the realm of sin and began to live in his glorified body in the realm of his eternal kingdom. In that sense, that kingdom broke into this realm of sin and death through his resurrection. And Paul is saying because we are united to him, his resurrection to new life means that we too are able to live in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, what that means is we can live differently from how we used to live before we knew Christ. We can live under His Lordship, free from the dominion, the slavery of sin. Paul prays that the... Readers of his letter to the church at Ephesus will understand this. At the end of Ephesians 1, he said, I want you to grasp this. I want you to get your mind around this. And he includes in that prayer, that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened, that you may know, know what? No facts, no realities, know the truth. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of this great might that he who worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? The greatness of that same power is at work in us who believe. Resurrection power, power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God has poured out toward us who are in Christ. So brothers and sisters, what this means is we are not left to our own resources in this world. You might feel like that sometimes. You might feel helpless. The devil comes and lies and deceives and tries to get you to think things that are not true. Like, yeah, you'll never overcome this. That's just who you are. This is how you're going to live the rest of your life. You're a hypocrite. You'll be nothing but a hypocrite. You're going to continue in your hypocrisy. In fact, all Christians are hypocrites. What we must do is come back to what the Word says and believe what this Word says about the resurrection of Christ, that just as God raised him from the dead, so we too, in Christ, might live in the newness of life. We can live a life of real faith and confidence in what God says being true. And when we do sin, we don't have to wallow in it. We don't have to live a condemned mentality through it. We can repent and we can look back to Christ and acknowledge we're in him and we should never sin. And when we do sin, we hate it. We turn away from it. We resolve with the power that raised him from the dead to put it to death and to get up and go forward by grace, living in the newness of life. A Christian is a person who's been united to Christ. That's a fact. Paul puts it in the indicative, as he does multiple times elsewhere in the rest of his letters. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and the new has come. He's not saying this something you've got to try to make happen. He's just saying that's the way it is. You're in Christ. This is the way that it is. He doesn't say the new might come. The new should come. The new will come. But the new has come. Christian, you are a new creation. You've been made new by the power of God's Spirit in Christ. In Him, you have died to sin. In Him, you have been buried with a finality of living your life the old way. And you have been raised with Christ to live in the newness of life. These are facts. These are what the Bible sets forth as indicatives of the Christian life. So I've got a question for you, brother, sister do you believe this? Does this sound too far out to you? Too contrary to your experience? You see, you're either going to believe it or you're not. My plea to you this morning is to take God at his word. And if you don't fully understand it, well, that's fine. Join the club. But don't let what you don't know and understand, keep you from bowing before the God who has spoken to you these truths. And ask God to show you, to teach you. You know, I I think some Christians are, are like that little boy who at night is scared to go to bed because he's just convinced there's a monster underneath his bed. Dad goes into the room, turns on the light, gets a flashlight, gets the boy down and shows him there's no monster under the bed little boy gets back in his bed. He still frets. He still cries. He's still without comfort. Why? Because he just can't let himself believe what is objectively true. Unbelief robs him of peace and comfort. Brothers and sisters, that can be true of us too. And we need to fight against unbelief and we need to bow ourselves before the scriptures and say, oh God, help me to take you at your word. Help me to believe what you say about anything. Help me today to believe what you say about me in Christ. Help me to believe because of Christ and my unity with him, my union with him, that my life is completely different to what it was before I was in Christ. Help me to believe that I died to sin. Help me to think about sin rightly. Help me to believe I've been buried with Christ. Help me to believe that the life I now live is a life that I live not by my own resources, but according to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Help me to live in this newness of life. Believe this. Remember these facts. Embrace them. And then willingly, Willingly accept all the obligations that God lays on you as He does later in this chapter to turn away from sin, to live with the calling uh, that befits those who know the true and living God because by faith we are in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for not leaving us in the world without a clear testimony of Yourself. Thank You for these glorious truths. Help us to believe, as those who name the name of Christ, that we are in union with Him. God, help us to think about the significance that comes to us in knowing that we have been crucified with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. I pray for those outside of Christ today that you would draw them to him. You would cause them to hear your voice, to turn from sin, and to trust him savingly. Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.